0: Another pastor recently asked me, What do you believe are the greatest dangers facing the church today? It's an interesting question. There's plenty of ways that it could be answered. If you look around the, the world and the culture, and even the sort of debates and arguments and infights within the church itself, there's plenty of things that seem to be clawing at the church's unity and health and witness. But I think that consideration of the question, what is the greatest danger facing the church, it it, it leads us to ponder another question that's back behind that question. The question of this, what are Satan's primary tools in his war against the people of God? If we're going to identify the greatest threats, if you will, the greatest dangers to the church, it makes sense to consider the sort of tactics of the devil— in his warfare against the people of God. Well, what is he doing? What is he after? How does he intend to uh, disrupt and dissuade and uh, divide the church of Jesus Christ? And Revelation 13 answers that question powerfully and profoundly by introducing us to two of his chief allies portrayed in the sort of mythological narrative Of John's vision as two great beasts, one rising from the sea and one rising from the earth. And if we can identify these two beasts, then I think we'll have a good idea of the dragon's primary schemes against the church in his warfare against God and his people. And then we might be able to answer with better clarity. What are the greatest dangers facing the church? indeed these dangers must be grave indeed for in the middle of this chapter in verse 10 john sort of interrupts the story with this exhortation here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints so a quick overview of where we have come from before we jump into chapter 13 so we're we've begun the second half of the book of revelation The vision of Revelation is divided really into two portions, the first 11 chapters looking at the conflict of the church on earth. So in very kind of human terms, we see the church uh, at war against uh, human powers and authorities and pressures and persecutions and things. So we see the, the church on earth under siege. And then chapters 12 through 22, we see the same story, the same conflict, but from a heavenly sort of cosmic perspective. And indeed, we, we see that this whole second half of the book unfolds as the drama between Christ and his conflict with the dragon. We are introduced last week in chapter 12 to uh, the dragon, who clearly uh, is a representative, uh, represents Satan himself, the devil, that ancient serpent, we call him. And so in Revelation 12, the, this vision began with a woman Giving birth to a child. And we were told that that child was one that was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, clearly messianic language, clearly pointing to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer. And the dragon was waiting to devour the child when it was born. But the child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so the dragon was not able to devour the child. And so that was a picture of the exaltation of Christ after his death and resurrection, and he ascended into heaven. That exaltation of Christ after his victory at the cross and the empty tomb, he ascended to heaven and the devil, the dragon, was thwarted. And so now the dragon has turned his attention to the woman's offspring, namely the church. And so chapter 12 ended In verse 17, with the dragon, it says, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, and indeed he summons in the verses we'll read today some allies, one from the sea and one from the earth. So I'm going to read for you the whole chapter, it's 18 verses. Bear with me as we read all the way through it. And as we read, I want you to notice the theme of parody, the theme of a mimicry of something of God. See if you can identify in your own mind as we read ways that something of God and his nature and his purposes and his work are parodied by the dragon and his allies. So, beginning in verse 1, chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. But the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now before we explore the identity and activity of these two beasts, I want you to observe and just remember this important fact: Their mission, whoever they are, is to wage war against the church. That's the very reason that they are summoned. The dragon, the devil turns away from the woman, having failed to devour the child, and puts his attention on the church, verse 17 of chapter 12 says, to make war on the rest of her offspring. And so he stands on the sands of the sea and he summons first the beast that rises out of the sea and next the beast that rises out of the earth. So whoever they are, whoever they represent, their mission is war on the people of God. So these beasts are serving the sole purpose of attacking and sieging and destroying the church. That's what they're after. Well, Let's take these beasts one at a time. The first beast, the first 10 verses of chapter 13, tell us about this beast that rises out of the sea. And here's what I contend is the identity, the the meaning of this beast. It is state persecution. State persecution. One thing to keep in mind as we're going through the book of Revelation, many people read the book of Revelation with a a futurist hermeneutic, meaning they see most, if not all, of what happens in the book of Revelation as depicting future events that will happen at the end of history, perhaps immediately before the return of uh, of Christ. And so if you read the book of Revelation with this kind of futurist lens— you'll probably see the beasts and identify the beasts as things or people or institutions who have not yet appeared on the world stage. And so perhaps you're familiar with people sort of looking at news headlines and trying to identify, is this the antichrist? Is this the beast? Is this the mark? All those kinds of things. We are taking a different approach to the book of Revelation. I see Revelation as not all depicting future events. There are clearly future events portrayed. Don't get me wrong. But the book of Revelation is, a, is a, a, a cycle, or rather it's a repetition of cycles that look at all of history and especially the age between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. So this age that we live in is what is generally under evaluation. And so I believe that it it, it is more faithful to the way that Revelation unfolds to see these beasts not as merely things or people that will occur in the future, but things and powers and forces and people that we can identify even now, and indeed that John's first readers could have identified in their own day. So that's enough sort of preface. The beast from the sea, I believe, represents state persecution. Now here's the first parody that that I see, and it's the parody of a sort of unholy trinity we see, of course, the dragon, we were introduced to him in chapter 12, the dragon as the, the devil. And now he calls to himself two uh, servants, two allies, the beast rising out of the sea and then the beast rising out of the earth, who later is identified as the false prophet. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But so this first parody then is the devil himself sort of presents himself as this trinity of, uh, of beings. Right, and so the devil and the first beast, the sea beast, and the earth beast represent the a trinity, a mockery, a mimicry of the triune God, but obviously with unholy purposes and indeed to make war on uh, God and his people. So, let me give you some reasons why I see the beast uh, as representing state persecution. The first one has to do with a vision that we see in Daniel chapter 7. We don't have Time to to read all of that or hang out there too long, but it is a really important chapter. It's this is not the first time it appears in Revelation, by the way. That's a very important chapter for the Book of Revelation, but even more specifically, as we think about the identity of this beast, Daniel has a vision a vision in chapter nine of four beasts who emerge, and each one has the appearance of a different sort of carnivorous creature. One looks like a leopard, one looks like a bear, one looks like a lion, etc. And those beasts uh, have, uh, the fourth beast especially, has ten horns. And the, uh, the book of Daniel tells us that those horns represent ten successive kingdoms, earthly kingdoms that will arise and make war on Yahweh and his people. And so it, the, the beast in Revelation 13, the first beast, is sort of a composite like a conglomeration of all of the beasts of Daniel's vision in chapter 7 because you see it it says it had the appearance of a leopard and it had feet like a bear and it had the mouth of a lion so it actually has all the sort of components of the individual beasts that Daniel saw but it sort of puts it all together it kind of looks like all of that and so the the fact that the beasts and their horns in Daniel 7 were clearly depicted as and said to represent earthly governments that set themselves against God, it's very natural to see this beast rising out of the sea as human political powers who set themselves up against God and his church. I think that's what the context of Daniel 7 and the fulfillment, if you will, of that vision uh, points us toward in Revelation 13. Another reason I think the beast is state persecution is that its appearance is that of ferocious carnivores, right? A leopard, a bear, a lion. These are ready to tear and devour their prey, right? These are fierce uh, beasts. Their images of power and of conquering. Indeed, governments and government authority and military conquest were often depicted in that age uh, through the images of, of lions and bears and, and wolves and these kinds of powerful carnivores. Reminded, of course, of the language in 1 Peter 5, 8, where Peter tells us plainly, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So whoever this beast is, whoever this beast represents, he, he is ferocious and fearsome, and he aims to destroy. Another reason within the text is that the power given the beast by the dragon You see, it says that the dragon gave to it uh, power and a throne and great authority. The power that was given to it is clearly governing power. The mention of a throne itself points us to a monarchy, a kingdom, a dictator, right? Someone who is leading uh, a, a nation, leading a people. He's given a throne. He's given authority. In fact, we're told later in the chapter over every tribe and people and language and nation. So this is a global sort of power and political authority. So it makes sense for the beast to be seen as state persecution because the power he's given in the narrative is specifically a governing power, a ruling power. In John's mind and to his first readers, this almost certainly would have evoked the Roman Empire. was not only the greatest world power of the day, but it was also notorious among Christians for its totalitarian demand of allegiance and homage. We've spoken already in in other places in Revelation of the, the Roman Empire's requirement of emperor worship. You had to participate in the imperial cult to even be included in the basic sort of economic realities of the day. You were excluded from the trade guilds and could not buy or sell if you did not honor and worship the emperor and name him as a, as a god or as a, a savior. In chapter two, in Christ's letter to the church at Smyrna, that was very clearly going on as they were excluded from uh, the, the, the society and the economics of their culture. And Christ said that they were poor, but they were rich spiritually because they were trusting Christ and true to him. So all inhabitants of the empire were expected to pay felty and, and honor to the Roman emperor, worshiping him as a god in order to participate in the trade guild in their, in their towns where they lived. And so as this beast is being described, was given a throne and authority and who is a, it rules like a fearsome lion or bear, and he's seeking to devour and to destroy. And as he has authority over every tribe and nation and people and language, and he, he, there's economic discrimination for those who don't receive the mark or what, whatever that is. We'll get to that in a few minutes as well. It would make sense for these readers of John's, uh, of John's book to think this is Rome. This is clearly the Roman empire. But I think beyond that, It would point to the Roman Empire, but I think it would point indeed in any generation to any human government that sets itself up against God and his purposes. And every government, not every government is not equally wicked, not necessarily suggesting that we should brand every civil government or look at our own country and think, oh no, the the United States government is, is the beast, but every government tends toward totalitarian control because it's in human nature, right? Every government longs for more sort of authority and control and access to people's lives and, and livelihoods because that's the nature of human authority and human power. William Hendrickson says, "'The sea-born beast symbolizes the persecuting power "'of Satan embodied in all the nations and governments "'of the world throughout all history. "'World dominion directed against God's people "'wherever and whenever it appears in history, that is the beast. So I think that the beast represents the persecution of the church by state power. Here's a second parody. We saw this unholy trinity of dragon, sea beast, and earth beast. There's a second parody where the, the beast has, uh, what, or one what of the horns of the beast actually, it has what appears to be a mortal wound, mortal wound being a wound that would kill it, and yet it seems to have recovered. Sort of a mock resurrection, right? Christ was crucified and dead and buried, and then he was raised from the dead. And here, this evil power representing the devil's government seems to have been killed and then returns to power, comes back to life, it seems to be healed. Now, if we're thinking of this beast as, uh, as a, a governing authority, it seems that perhaps the empire seems to lose its power, at least for a time. Maybe it looks to be on the brink of collapse, maybe it looks like it's been conquered, and then it rises back to power and prominence. And indeed, that happened in Rome. So if you consider the first century leaders uh, of the Roman Empire, uh, the, the notorious Emperor Nero in the 60s uh, was a very aggressive anti-Christian activist and put Christians to death, and then he died, and some time went by, and people indeed thought that there would be a resurrection of Nero. Nero Nero's going to return, and enough time went by that maybe that uh, expectation had sort of faded, but then in the 90s, the emperor Domitian came into power, and he basically resumed the same level of persecution against the church, and Domitian was the emperor during the years when John most likely wrote the book of Revelation. So again, the readers of John's book in that century would have had in their minds the Roman Empire that had, where the persecution had waned after Nero and now it's risen again through the emperor Domitian. And so perhaps this mortal wound is the apparent faltering and collapse of the empire and then it's sort of sudden return to, to power. The beast blasphemes God and his people he makes war on the saints and he conquers them. We're told that he was given the authority to conquer them for 42 months. There's again that period of time, that three and a half year period of time. We saw it in chapter 11, verse 2, where God said that uh, the, the city of Jerusalem would be, would be trampled for 42 months. We saw it in, in uh, Revelation 11:3, 3, where he gave power to his prophets to prophesy, to give witness for that same period of time for for 1,260 days. We saw that in chapter 12, verse 6, where the where the dragon went after the woman and the woman fled to the wilderness where she was nourished, we're told, for a time and times and half a time, which is three and a half years. If a time is a year and times is two years and a half a time is a half a year, you get that same period of time. And again, I believe that every time that Time frame emerges in Revelation. It's not a future tribulation that's to come. It's this present age. It's this evil age between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. And so the beast, this state persecuting authority, is given authority by the sovereign God for this age to pressure and persecute and conquer. The saints, not to conquer them in the sense of utterly destroying them, not to conquer them in the sense of wiping out the church from the earth, but in the sense of exercising earthly power over them and indeed bringing harm and even death upon them. So all of these things show uh, the, the, the devil and this first beast at work in evil governing authorities that seek the harm of the people of God. Well, what's the effect of the beast upon people, right? So you see him doing uh, all of these things to, to the church. Well, people on the earth, it says, uh, marvel at him. And they follow him, look at verse three. And it says they worship the dragon because he gave the authority of the beast and they worship the beast. And who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And so there's there's worship and homage and honor paid to The beast. Worship here representing uh, allegiance, subservience. And we need to remember as well that the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, doesn't mean literally every person who lives in the world. It is a technical term in Revelation that always refers to unbelievers. Those who dwell on the earth are the people who do not belong to Jesus Christ. They are the people who have rejected God and who are unbelievers. And so those who dwell on the earth, unbelievers, give their homage and their loyalty and their uh, allegiance to uh, these governing systems. It's made even more clear when it says, In verse 8, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship it. And then it gives even more specifically, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb has a book, and there are names in this book, and the names in the book were written there before the foundation of the world. And the names in this book represent those who belong to God through faith in Christ And those who are not in this book, those who do not trust in Christ, are those who dwell on the earth. And they give allegiance and loyalty to these governing powers that set themselves up against God. Not everyone who worships the beast, it doesn't mean, excuse me, that everyone who worships the beast will have their name blotted out of the book of life. It's not as though the book of life has every human in it and God's going, oh, did you worship the beast? Okay, I'm crossing your name out. No, indeed, it's the exact opposite of that. It's the reason that they worship the beast is that the names weren't written there in the first place. The Lamb's book of life is secure. The names that are there don't get blotted out, as Jesus said to one of the churches in, uh, in Revelation 3. The, la- the names in the Lamb's book of life are there for good. So those whose names aren't there are those who worship the beast. And so the central exhortation in this chapter, which comes to us in verse 10, is indeed the same as the central exhortation of the entire book. And it's simply this. Stay true to Jesus Christ. No matter what. You're going to be pressured. You're going to be persecuted. There's going to be forces of evil at work to devour you and destroy you and deceive you. Stay true to Jesus persevere in faith don't give in to the pressure of the powers in this world indeed the power of the devil to corrupt you to deceive you and to lead you away from christ and his kingdom here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints the battle is fierce the power of the devil is formidable the earthly consequences of resistance are terrible But hang on. Submit to the sovereign will of God, even if it means captivity or death. That's the message of the book of Revelation. That's the message of chapter 13. So the first beast that the dragon summons rises from the sea and represents the persecution of the people of God by state authorities, by wicked totalitarian governments. And so it's the power of Satan behind the Roman Empire and behind Nazi Germany and behind communist China and indeed any human government throughout the age that opposes God and persecutes his people. And in verse 11, we're introduced to the second beast and his work is very closely related to that of the first. And I would identify the second beast as false religion. If the first beast is state persecution, the second beast is false religion. In fact, this second beast is identified as the false prophet in several subsequent passages in Revelation in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, in Revelation 19, verse 20, and in Revelation 20, verse 10. The beast is, the second beast is referred to by the name, the false prophet. And so you hear of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, that again, that unholy trinity. And so the second beast and the false prophet are one and the same. And so this beast, this prophet is the mouthpiece of the sea beast, right? The sea beast is the persecuting state and the false prophet is is his mouthpiece, is his propaganda machine, the totalitarian church persecuting state and the prophet he he is the the prophet of satan's false religion so systems of belief and and life and, and philosophies and religions that set themselves up as as truth but indeed are founded upon the lies of the dragon william hendrickson says the second beast is the lie of satan dressed up like the truth. So I want to point you to a whole succession of parodies here. These verses are filled with these sort of mimicries, these mockeries that the devil and his allies present. So the third parody that we come across is, is the way that he presents himself. It says that he has two horns like a lamb. And so who do we think of when we think of a lamb? We think of Jesus himself who was presented to us, In Revelation uh, 5, as the Lamb of God, standing as though it had been slain. And so the Lamb, throughout Revelation, is Jesus, the one who was slain for his people. And here, the false prophet, the propagandist for the state-persecuting powers of Satan, appears like a lamb, two horns like a lamb. He's he's gentle, he's, he's harmless, he's disarming, right? But notice, he speaks, like a dragon. He speaks like a dragon. Who's the dragon? The devil, it's Satan. Don't be fooled. His appearance is gentle and welcoming like a lamb, but his speech gives him away. He is an agent of Satan in the world. And the main thing he does is to point people toward the first beast. And here's parody number four. He mimics the work of the Holy Spirit. Because we're told of the Holy Spirit of God that his ministry is to shine a spotlight onto Christ. The Holy Spirit isn't trying to get people's attention and say, look at me. The Holy Spirit is saying, hey, look at Christ. That's the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you look throughout the New Testament, he is pointing people to Jesus. Put your faith in him. And he's applying the work of Jesus to the hearts and souls of of believers. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And here the false prophet does not seek his own power and glory, but the glory of the first beast. Everything he does is to say, hey, look at the power of the beast. Look at the beauty of the beast. Look at how the beast was killed and came back to life. The, the prophet is pointing to the beast, thus mimicking the work of the Holy Spirit. It even, parody number five, mimics the miracles of Jesus. We're told that he would perform powerful signs. Look at verse 13. He performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. Now, these signs may be actual miracles performed by demonic power. Jesus warned in Matthew 24, 24 of false Christs and false prophets who will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead many astray. So perhaps as the days draw nearer to the end of the age, the intensity and visibility of the devil's displays of power may increase. And so these could very well be actual physical miracles that some power or some propagandist on behalf of the power actually performs. But nevertheless, it parodies the, the miracles of, of Jesus. There's a sixth parody. In the mark that the followers of the beast receive. Look in verse sixteen. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast. Or the number of his name. So the name of the beast is on the forehead or the right hand of all of those who follow the beast. And that is a mimicry, a mockery of the name of God that was placed on the forehead of the 144,000 in Revelation 7. And by the way, they're going to appear in the next chapter. Chapter 14 begins with John looking, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him... 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We're even reminded in the very near context of that mark. I don't think it's a literal mark. I don't think it's a physical mark. Everybody who belongs to Jesus has the name inscripted on their forehead. I don't think it's literal. It's just a representation of their belonging. When God uh, put the name of himself and his city and his Christ on the foreheads of the 144,000 in Revelation 7, it was to seal them. It was to mark them as belonging to him. And in the same way, the false prophet will cause his subjects to receive a mark to indicate their allegiance and that they belong to him, that is to Satan. They won't necessarily think of it that way. Those who receive this mark, this this symbolic mark of the beast probably don't necessarily recognize, oh yeah, I've got Satan's name on my head. Isn't that cool? But that's what it is. That's what's back behind the allegiance. That's what's back behind the demand for subservience. If you're going to participate in the economic realities and life of the the kingdom, you have to have this mark. Namely, you have to show that you belong, that you submit. And the consequences of refusing the mark are dire. Economic discrimination, it says here, you can't buy or sell unless you have the mark. Possibly death. A few verses ago, it said that, the, that he would cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So those who say no thanks to the mark, who say no, I'm not going to submit the totalitarian state persecuting or, or per- church persecuting power of the state, they may be killed. And yet that is the reality. And it's not merely a future reality. It's a present reality. It's a reality that's been the case ever since the first generation of Christians. It was true of these, Rome, of these citizens of Rome and these followers of Jesus who lived in these towns in Asia Minor. They had to worship the emperor or be excluded from the economic systems of their day. It's true of any number of, of countries and societies throughout history where subservience to the power of the state was a necessary condition of remaining free, of being not imprisoned or not executed. Now, people love to speculate about this mark and the number, right? What is the mark of the beast? And what what does this number mean? And, And all of the speculations hinge, of course, as I said earlier, upon a futurist reading, of revelation in other words where all of the things we're seeing are something that's going to happen in the future at the end of history right before jesus returns and so upon that kind of futurist reading well the beast represents some individual or kingdom who will rise to power at the end of history uh, immediately prior to christ's return and so then we're sort of encouraged to frantically look through news headlines what's going on around the world look what's happening in the middle east right Uh, and keep track of rising political leaders. Could this be the one? Could this be the guy? Could this chip or that technology or this vaccine be the mark of the beast? I'm sure you've heard it. That's not what this mark represents. We are looking at Revelation not primarily as a literal depiction of future people and events, but as a symbolic portrayal of the entirety of this age between Christ's ascension and return in light of god's purposes of cosmic redemption so in other words in every place and every time where there is a secular state or governing authority that sets itself up against god and seeks to pressure and persecute the church there has been and will continue to be this mark and this number so i think we're we're wrongly spending our energies on trying to identify who is the particular beast? What is the particular mark? What is the exact meaning or mathematical code or combination of six, six, six? I think that's a wrong pursuit. I don't think that's what these things mean. The mark is not a literal mark. It's a recognition of some kind of belonging and of allegiance and of subservience, subservience to the state power. And the number is not a mathematical anomaly or some code that has to be cracked as people have tried to do. Well, the name Ronald Reagan or whatever, you know, if you add up the mathematical quality of the letters, it adds up to 666 or whatever. They're all all kind of goofy stuff like that that people have done through the years. That's not the point of this number. In fact, I would suggest it's simply this. In fact, he tells us it's the number of man and his number is 666. So six is one less than what? Seven. What is seven throughout Revelation? Perfection, completeness. So, the, so six is the number of man because man is less than perfect, right? Man is fallen. Man is imperfect. And because man's number is 666, which is just a threefold repetition of six, it simply means man is imperfect. Man is broken. Man is fallen. So again, I don't think we're necessarily going to actually start seeing the number 666 showing up on somebody's head or in somebody's bank, uh, you know, wallet chip or whatever. I don't, I don't think that that's what we're going to see. We're just supposed to recognize that the, the governing power of the state as it sets itself up against God and does war against the church is propagandized by this false prophet. His his message is proclaimed and subservience to the state is is encouraged by this false prophet. And all of those things represent the fallenness of man, the imperfection of man. And the mark represents those who have given themselves over to that authority. So as John called the saints to endurance and faith in verse 10, here in verse 18, he calls for wisdom. Look at how it ends. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. And it's appropriate that he calls us to wisdom when what he's talking about is recognizing lies. The false prophet is a liar. The false prophet presents the false religion of the world that the devil is constructing. And I think of this, the, you could kind of think of the two halves of Revelation 13 like this. When the threat against the church is domination, what's needed is courage to endure. That's what he calls us to in verse 10. When the threat is domination, what's needed is courage to endure. But when the threat is deception, and that's the work of the false prophet, when the threat is deception, what is needed is wisdom to discern. Wisdom to discern. Indeed, we need wisdom to identify counterfeit gospels and false ideologies, to recognize and reject empty philosophies and vain religions devoid of God's truth and powerless to save sinners. Whether it's world religions like Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, or it's godless worldly philosophies like Secular humanism, or expressive individualism, or even Christian nationalism. The church needs wisdom to discern these errors in order to remain faithful to the truth of God and avoid being led astray by the devil's deceptions. This calls for wisdom. So beast number one is the state's persecution and beast number two is false religion it's it's the systems of belief and the philosophies of the world that oppose god and confront and contradict his truth and that deceive people and lead them astray the question i started with was what are the greatest dangers facing the church And Revelation 13 really gives us two answers by introducing us to the primary agents that Satan employs in his warfare against God's people. Domination by state persecution and deception by false religion. I think those are the greatest threats facing the church because those are the primary tools that Satan is using to destroy, disrupt, divide, and deceive the church of Jesus. And the church will only stand faithfully against these pressures if the Spirit of God grants us endurance and faith and wisdom to resist the dragon and his powerful allies. And so as he calls on us to endure and to be faithful and he calls on us to to seek wisdom, may we indeed seek these resources from the holy spirit recognizing our own limitations our own weakness our own frailty we can't stand up against the powers and the persecutions and the false religion of the devil without his empowering his encouraging his wisdom so let's pray and ask god for these things